1: Well, welcome, everybody, to the Must Read Alaska show. For folks that are joining us, you get a two-for-one special today, which is very exciting. And uh, for those of you that have enjoyed the first show today, go on over to wherever you downloaded it. Maybe it's iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. The list goes on. Give us a five-star review. We'd love one. And for those of you that, um, you know, enjoy uh, our app, we have a Must Read Alaska app. If you just go to the iTunes store or the Android store on your phone, you can download the Must Read Alaska app for free. We put a lot of time and money resources into that. If you like that too, we'd love to have you leave us a review. Uh, Our second guest today, uh, which is very exciting, uh, is Pastor Matt from First Presbyterian of Anchorage. So without further ado, welcome to the Mustard Alaska Show, Pastor Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And please feel free just to call me Matt. Nice. Awesome, Matt. Well, one of the things I was we were chatting about before we went on live here is, man, if you go to for folks that are listening, if you just go to uh, the Anchorage First Pres Facebook page, one of the cool things that I think uh, any church can be doing is is some of the low hanging fruit stuff, which is um, you know feeding folks in need, um, helping uh, you know with backpacks during school time, and that's some of the first pictures that you'll see on uh, Anchorage First Pres, which I think is awesome. So uh, Matt, where did you grow up? For folks that you know, maybe this is their first time um, getting to know you here on Facebook Live on Mustry Alaska, especially for maybe some of our listeners. Uh, Where did you grow up and uh, was it in Alaska? And then if it wasn't, what brought you to Alaska? Uh, No, it was not Alaska. I grew up in
0: New York state and it's always important to differentiate between, you know, Manhattan and where I grew up, which is (laughs) way upstate New York in the mountains. Well, what we on the East Coast call mountains anyhow. And uh, the town I grew up in was mostly dairy farms. So there were far more cows than there were people in my hometown. And, uh, it's, it's a really beautiful place. I I plan to go for a visit pretty soon with my son just to show him, you know, visit grandma and show him all the places that I grew up. It's uh, a gorgeous little country town. And, uh, What brought me up here initially was adventure. My wife had been up here um, before we ever met, and she was here for a brief time. And when I decided to propose to her and ask her if she would stoop down to my level, she said, yes, (laughs) on the condition that you might be willing one day to move to Alaska because she had been here and knew she needed to come back. And I was like, yeah, deal. And so we found a, a position actually at this same church. She and I were
1: the youth pastors here back in the late 90s. That's awesome. I tell people I'm the president of the Married Up Club. When they look at me and my wife, they're like, how the hell did you pull that off? And, and uh, so, you know, for folks that are listening, uh, Pastor Matt is uh, pastor of First Presbyterian in Anchorage. And uh, man, how quick does it get country in New York? It's very quick. I don't think yeah. uh, folks realize that literally, you know, 20 minutes outside of New York City, you are in the country.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? It's almost, it's almost like they flip a switch and there you are in the rolling hills and the forests. And it's really,
1: it's very, very nice. So at some point in your life or journey, you made a choice to go to seminary. What, what led you to doing that? That's a, that's a pretty big task. I'm a fuller dropout. Oh, and I, I, I uh I, I know that it's very, seminary is not for the faint of heart. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of papers. It's a lot of work. And so what led you to doing that?
0: Well, as I mentioned, my wife and I were the youth pastors here. We both knew by that point that we wanted to be involved in the church in some way, shape, or form for our careers. And as we were teaching, particularly in youth groups and Sunday morning, uh, Sunday schools, we were starting to recognize how little... We really knew that we had kind of taught everything we knew, and that um, the more we learned as we were studying for these curricula and teaching moments, the, the more we realized that we just had the surface level skimming across the the top of of what we should know. Um, so really, it was just just a a moment of recognizing within ourselves our own weakness of how much we knew, and we said we need to find people wiser than ourselves to teach us. So we uh, we looked around at lots of Seminaries and chose the one that was halfway between the grandparents. By that point, we had a one-year-old. So we were like, let's let's try <laughs> to thread the needle between the grandparents. So we can visit both. Nice. Where did you go? Where did you end up going? Princeton Theological Seminary. Hey, good for you. That's probably one of the
1: toughest ones out there.
0: Well, I don't know how they rank, but I will tell you that it stretched us and made us work very, very hard. And we're we're happy for that.
1: That's awesome. So what was your, in that seminary, did you, did they make you do like a final paper? And what was that topic on? I'm just curious. Oh, um, lots and lots. I mean, it was papers all the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, to, to go into what most pastors end up having uh, to go into ministry is the Master of Divinity degree. Okay. So that's a three-year degree, but I also got the Master's in Youth Ministry. So I was in a double program, got the two Master's. concurrently. Nice. Kind of And so I did a lot of work within youth ministry specifically, which included a lot of adolescent development and child psych classes that go along with that. Um, So no, I did not have like one
1: specific final paper. I had about like 10 or 20. (laughs) You have like 20 (laughs) specific papers. Yeah, That's awesome. So at some point you probably, you know, you make the conscious conscious decision of, you know, uh, whether, you know, some people call it a calling or whatever, you, you know, different labels of Of becoming a full-time pastor and moving back to Anchorage, what did that look like for you and your family? Um,
0: Well, I mean, ever since I was a kid, it was in the back of my mind as a possibility. My uncle is a priest and I always considered him a real role model and a hero to me. And um, both of my parents were heavily involved in the church. So it was always something that I considered uh, honorable and interesting, and and really at a basic level of my heart and soul, just something I considered to be good, and I wanted to do something good that helped the world become a kinder and safer place. Um, but yeah, as you get older, that kind of crystallizes and takes shape, and you start thinking, what can I do to serve the world? And recognizing my complete lack of math skills i thought well i'm not going to be an engineer so maybe i can uh find other ways and this definitely was was that calling i mentioned the youth ministry side of things before that i was thinking other things like perhaps maybe being a teacher or something unrelated to 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 ministry but once i jumped into the youth ministry job here in 1997 it just clicked And I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. You know, you get the little taste of it and you realize this is what I was supposed to do. So then throughout seminary, they test that call within the Presbyterian Church. It's very much a community endeavor. You have lots of other people who have been in this for a long time praying with you and teaching you and helping you to discern, is this really what you're supposed to do? And so they brought me along and helped me kind of uh, fix the flaws as best we could and build up on the strengths and, and off you go to the races.
1: Nice. So you've been doing, you know, ministry work, uh, on and off, probably mostly on since the the mid nineties in Anchorage, which is pretty awesome. Sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I was ordained
0: in 2005, uh, but yeah, had been doing ministry well before that. And then after that we graduated in 2005 and were in New York and New Jersey for a couple of years.
1: And then back here in 2013. Nice. So one of the things that, um, you know, I think Anchorage gets a lot of attention for whether it's in the paper or assembly meetings or just kind of scuttlebutt uh, gossip around town is homelessness. And so I think as somebody like yourself, you know, I'm just getting to know you here for the first time, but, you know, five minute search can tell that you care about uh, Anchorage and the community and, and somebody that's in the thick of it, if you will. I'm not, I live on the Kenai Peninsula. Do you think that, you know, As a subject matter expert on people, do you think that there is a homeless problem and would you define it that way? Is is it a problem?
0: Oh, I would say that if even one person is homeless, then you have a homelessness problem. We have currently uh, most likely over 1,000. And so, yes, that that would definitely be a, a homelessness problem. If it's only one person, then it may require one type of strategy. If it's over 100, that's a different strategy. And if it's over 1,000, another strategy still. When you get to numbers of that size, not only does it require um, policy solutions, but it also most likely is a result of policy choices. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned before how our church shares food with people on a one-to-one basis and how we share our garden space to grow food for others. And, you know, we hand out dry socks and we hand out bus passes and things of that nature to individual people who are experiencing homelessness. And that's great. But uh, to quote Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he says you can pull people out of the river, but eventually you have to start going upriver to find out why so many people keep falling in. So, um, We're trying to do both. We're pulling people out of the river as we see them. Uh, Just this morning, we, you know, we tend to have between five and 10 on the church property each morning. Homeless people that I help to wake up and say, you got to move on because we have, you know, school coming in in a minute here. Um, So we help them as best we can. But also we have to look at the policies to say, why are so many people winding up in a situation like this and how can we help them escape it?
1: So being in Anchorage since the mid '90s, have you seen this problem get worse, better, stay the same? What, what what's your opinion on that? I was not involved in the '90s in
0: that um, world, so it would not have been until 2013 that I started okay. being involved in this. In that time frame, that's hard to say. And I would also, I, I would, I would recommend that people not look at it just on what it feels like, but rather get into the numbers that are officially presented by, you know, a, a few different entities you can choose to look at. Because um there are many different types of homelessness. And um a lot of people tend to go by the visible homelessness that we see, for example, on street corners with cardboard signs, we see people standing there, or like I mentioned before, people who are sleeping on our property. Um, that is that is one way to gauge one particular strain of homelessness but it doesn't um really get to things such as people who are who are perhaps in a temporary housing situation or couch surfing or any number of other th- or you know perhaps in a hospital bed but don't have a home to go to so those are broader metrics and less of an anecdotal evidence kind of
1: gauge yeah one of the things that was eye opening to me as just a you know um Person that lives on the Kenai Peninsula is that there's homeless. There's a lot of homeless kids, even like just home. You know, I don't know about Anchorage, but I can speak for the Kenai Peninsula. There's a ton of kids that are homeless that go to school every day, and maybe they're couch surfing, or maybe they're staying at a friend's house, but they literally don't have a home to live in because they're, you know, every two weeks they're changing, you know, where they live at in terms of their friend's couch, and I think sometimes uh it's overwhelming for folks you know let's say you're a stay at home mom or a stay at home dad or you got two jobs apiece you know mom and dad and you got four kids and there's just not enough time in the day it feels like to make a difference what what do you feel like are tangible ways for folks that genuinely care but don't have a ton of time to help out mm-hmm. Well, you know, we mentioned a moment ago about helping people in the real practical
0: one-to-one ways or policy ways. Those are both important. Uh, That old saying, give a man a fish, he'll eat for today, teach him how to fish, he'll eat forever. Uh, Our approach is both. Give him a fish, he'll be much more able to learn how to fish. And um, so if, for example, you mentioned a family that is just maxed out on time, you don't have time to go get involved in the broader systems, then absolutely giving someone a meal is super important, or going down just for one day to volunteer at one of the shelters. That's very, very important. Um, there's, there's the danger that we uh, make the perfect to the enemy of the good, right? Uh, you don't have to solve all of homelessness for all of Anchorage to show compassion to an individual person. So there are ways you can look online uh, of how you can make a, like a little baggy packet of useful items for someone who is homeless and you can hand those out. That's a good example to set for your kids too, that if you, for instance, see someone on the corner with the sign and maybe you feel uncomfortable giving cash, you can say, well, here's a baggy with a little bit of, you know, some granola bars and some dry socks and a bus pass in it. Hand that to the person and say, here you go. Hope you're doing okay. That little bit of compassion goes a long, long way. It's a great way to live out your faith or your values. So your children see you doing that. And it's safe both for the giver and the receiver. And now, it's just
1: something as like a what energy bar, maybe yeah. maybe, you know, toothpaste, toothbrush, like simple little things that we take for granted that I can just go to my cupboard and you know pick out two right. of them. Those personal hygiene
0: items can be super helpful. And I've mentioned socks a couple of times. That tends to be high on the list for lots of uh, recipients. Now, that's part part of it, and you could, that can be your piece of the puzzle. However, let's imagine that you are a, a lawyer or or you work in human resources. I mean, you could be then such a great resource to a person who's looking for a job. And maybe they're homeless saying, I have skills. I want to find stability in my life. I just need a little bit of a a nudge in the right direction. And that requires a longer term commitment. You need to be linked up with an agency of some sort. You can call the coalition to end homelessness and say, here are some skills I'd like to devote to this, maybe an hour a week, and they could help you out. Maybe United Way is a place you prefer to work with or the municipality. There are lots of avenues that you could find into it and say, here are my skills. How can I help people find stability?
1: That's awesome. So let's say if you had a magic wand and could flick a switch, you've kind of broached the topic of policy. What are some policy things that you'd want changed or fixed? Uh, we, boy, there are so many. That's a can of worms, <laughs> I know. But Yeah, yeah. Know.
0: there are so many needs out there and so many ways that government can be hugely helpful. Uh, one thing we definitely need is uh, more caseworkers, so individual people who are trained to help homeless people find their way out of homelessness. Um, we need more treatment beds for people who are struggling with mental illness or with addiction, not just treatment beds, but people who are trained how to provide the proper counseling to help people in that situation. If you are addicted to alcohol, for example, that might be the most common one. Um, It's not as simple as saying, well, get over that and then go find a job, right? I mean, it, it takes a lot more than just willpower when you're living on the street and in danger all the time to simply, like you mentioned before, there's no magic wand. No one has that magic wand to say addiction, poof, I'm all better. Or now I have a job or now mental illness has been eradicated from me just because I chose to, right? These things require a broad base of professional uh, people and professional facilities to address those problems. And so that I would say that's probably where I would start if I had that magic wand. Are you
1: hopeful for solutions uh, or are you more discouraged than encouraged? Always hopeful. Okay. That's a job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Always hopeful. There are steps forward. We are about this close to the finish line of completing the purchase of the guest house, which is a downtown hotel, which will be used to provide homes, not temporary shelter, not overnight, you know, ups, but an actual you pay rent and this is your apartment. You live here homes for people who are experiencing homelessness and who are workforce ready. To, to have stability and safety and healthiness while they work and pay for their home. It's, it's a beautiful opportunity that really hits uh, so many of the needs and so many of the priorities that are found on both the left and the right. It's, it's, this is one of those rare opportunities for people across the political spectrum to come together and say, yeah, we can all back this project.
1: Because I think my guess is that's a very tough step, step for a lot of folks. Let's say they've been homeless. They've, you know, they've maybe figured out a way to get into a temporary shelter and they're working their way into, okay, they have a job. Now they need a place to stay. My guess is the transition from a temporary shelter or just, you know, living in a tent to finding a place to stay is extremely tough and rare to find folks willing to work with those people. Oh, absolutely. And you hit on an important
0: aspect of it, the chicken and the egg aspect of do you get a job and then an apartment or do you have to get an apartment in order to even get a job? I mean, imagine yourself having to live on the streets for four weeks while you're trying to figure out what's next and then being told, oh, by the way, this afternoon you have a job interview and you're literally wearing the only clothes you have and you haven't had access to a good shower for several days and you have to go present yourself for a job interview and then they say sure you can start tomorrow but how are you going to get on a bus to get to work on time and where are you going to leave your things in the meantime to have a home allows you to get a job and so that's why housing first is one of the strategies that can be extremely successful let's allow people a home a safe place that's healthy and has a, a some dignity to it and once we've provided that stability, it does allow them to get a job. Frequently, it does allow them to find success in treatment for addiction and mental health issues as well, and other forms of physical health. Um, so it's a chicken and egg thing. Some people get the job first. Some people get the hotel, I mean, the, uh, the apartment first. An- another aspect of that um, is, is that as we look for people to find a, a place to live, in Anchorage in particular, the job market is really tight right now and so if you're if you're living on the street and trying to work trying to save up money you're going to need first month's rent last month's rent and a security deposit and that that's extraordinary for you and me perhaps that's within reach cuz we have stable jobs and a home to live in to maintain our lives but if you're living on the street to save up that many thousands of dollars which you're likely to have to carry around in your pocket in very unsafe circumstances it's just a hurdle that's impossible to overcome. So we just need to knock down some of these initial hurdles. And that allows people to get into their own cycle of healthiness and stability.
1: So uh, you think uh, Jesus would be hanging out with these kind of folks? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Any any society
0: you look at, you look at the people who are the hardest hit, who are the most outcast, who are the least welcome, who are the most in need. That's where Jesus is going to be.
1: Yeah, he was... Uh... And he oftentimes made fun of the folks that, uh, you know, were the put together people. And uh, that's yeah. one of the things I love about the uh, the Bible is that, uh, you know, Jesus was a, he was a, he was a very uh, outspoken, uh, uh, not cookie cutter, fit in a box kind of person. And he made fun of religious people. He made fun of the folks that are put together. He hung out with prostitutes, sinners. Yep. people with leprosy, um, all that kind of stuff that normally people even now would like, you know, if Jesus was here today, hanging out with prostitutes and chilling at the bar and people would not like that. Religious right,
0: leaders. Yeah. Did you ever see an old cowboy movie and there's always the church on one side and the saloon on the other?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm always thinking, yeah, Jesus, he's in that saloon for sure. He's just chilling in the saloon talking yeah. to normal <laughs> everyday folks. You know, even he, he you know, Jesus even went as far as to turn over the tables of the folks that were making profit really off sorry, of religion.
0: But I, lost your, I lost your signal for just a sec. Could you say that again, please?
1: Oh, can you hear me in my back?
0: I, I got you now. Yeah, if you don't okay. mind. just I said Jesus
1: even went as far as to turning over the tables of folks that were making a profit off of religion, which I think is very appropriate even in today's age. Agreed. Agreed. So how does, let's say you have, we have somebody listening to this and they're a Jesus follower and uh, how would you encourage them on how faith plays a role in taking care of folks that are, you know, disenfranchised uh, in society?
0: Well, I'll say two ways. One, on a a specific level in scripture, Matthew 25, at the end of that chapter is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And it gets right to what you were just talking about, that Jesus said, you know, when you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you saw me in prison, you visited me. When you saw me naked, you clothed me. Um, And they said, when? When did we ever see you? And he says, whenever you did that for the least of these, you did it for me. And so if you're a person of faith, um, this is directly what Jesus talked about. Here Jesus is outside this morning. When I got to church, I woke up Jesus and said, are you doing okay? I'm afraid you have to walk down the street because we have a school coming in. And I fully expect when I meet Jesus on judgment day, he's going to say, why did you send me down the street and not invite me in? Why didn't you give me food that morning? Why didn't you give me a hug? And I'm gonna to have to answer for that. That's a tough one. And and I'll say, Oh, but here are my reasons. I had a very busy schedule, I had this reason and that reason. And there's a school coming in, and they had I had, I had kids' soccer practice and I had seven or right. ten other things. And <laughs> Jesus will be doing this to me. He'll be going like, Yeah, uh-huh. Do you hear yourself, buddy? So um, that's you know, when Jesus got mad at the religious leaders, it was often for hypocrisy, and I think he'll call me on mine just as much, and so I'll That's something I struggle with on a daily basis. Um, Now, I mentioned you asked how people of faith following Jesus, how do they live this out? And that's the specific scripture that I like to turn to. But it's all throughout scripture, you know, all throughout the Old and New Testaments. This call to stand for and to stand with the people who are experiencing the most um, harm. For me, I find that handing someone a sandwich or handing someone 20 bucks is good. But if we can address a policy change that allows for Beans Cafe to be properly funded and given access to various places, that doesn't just give the one person a sandwich. It gives 100 people sandwiches and a much more cost effective rate than what I could do personally. If I give $20 $20 to one person, that helps out a little bit. If I give $20 to the Gospel Rescue Mission, that multiplies because they can do more with less than I can as an individual. So when you're following Jesus, you want to consider how to do it wisely and strategically. Uh, my least favorite bumper sticker in the world is perform random acts of kindness. I much prefer to encourage people to perform strategic and intelligent acts of kindness, because when we do those things together with teamwork, we we can save a thousand people's lives instead of just one.
1: Nice. Well, um, one of my last questions to you is this, Matt. So you've been in Anchorage doing this, you know, since the mid nineties, came back in 2013. Do you have one moment that you could look back on over, you know, the last almost 10 years and, you know, is your most exciting, proud moment of being a pastor at First Pres? You know, you. I appreciate that you sent me that question earlier and it's a
0: joyful question to consider and I I have to go kind of broad with it because it's, I don't want to open up anyone's privacy, but as a pastor, you frequently get invited into people's most soulfully impactful moments, meaning a brand new baby has been born or a person is approaching their death. And you're given the great privilege of being invited into those moments and it might sound counterintuitive in some ways, but to be invited to sit with the person as they are dying um, is a beautiful honor that you're allowed. And it's it's meaningful in a way that's very humbling. you're You're allowed to be present at a moment that that is really a family moment. And so I wouldn't say it makes you proud and it doesn't make you happy in the moment because it's tragic but it's it's a great honor that you're allowed to be a
1: caretaker in that time. They're going to hang out with Jesus. They're having a <laughs> they're they're probably having a better day than we're to happen. They're hanging out with yeah. Jesus, but it definitely is a very impactful moment and it sounds like you've been able to be a part of probably many of those over the years. It's both sad, tragic, uh, but also something that's super impactful. So, I think that that's a great um Thing to be excited about that you know as you've been pastor there for over 10 years um so what uh you know let's say somebody's listening and they're like you know this pastor of matt guy sounds awesome i want to go check out his church where can somebody find your church what's your website how can somebody look you up give us those details well,
0: thanks for asking we are at 616 west 10th avenue that's downtown at the corner of 10th and g right across the street from the park strip Um, if you just need to park someday when you're heading downtown, you know, give me a call. We'll hook you up. And, uh, also, the uh, the website, just Google us, I forget the actual website, but Google First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage. Make sure you Google Anchorage, Alaska, because there is also a First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage, Kentucky, and we sometimes get each other's mail and whatnot. So, but if you Google <laughs> us, you'll see we have worship services. This Sunday, it's going to be at 10 a.m., but for the, the all the following weeks, it begins at 11 a.m. for our worship services.
1: Awesome. Well, Pastor Matt, I appreciate you coming on the Must Read Alaska show. You're welcome back anytime, and uh, I I wish you nothing but success and encouragement as you're out there in the trenches every day, uh, trying to, you know, literally help out with the homeless uh, problem that we that we have in Anchorage. So, kudos to you for doing that, and uh, Godspeed. And for those of you listening, uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll be on the show tomorrow. I'll be on with the Mayor Cordova, which will be very exciting, and then we'll also have. Uh, Senator Dan Sullivan tomorrow around four o'clock, I believe. So it'll be another double header tomorrow. So until then, I'm John Quick signing off from somewhere in Alaska. Thanks again, Pastor Matt. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: yep.